the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 97. Recorded Friday, June 28th, 2013. 4K, okay or no go? Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. Welcome to another edition of AV Week. I am not Tim Albright, as you can tell, I'm sure. Tim is away today. I am George Tucker. I am your able-bodied host, at least we hope so. The last time I hosted, it was sort of usurped by the Bradford Matt Show. Uh, But today we're going to talk about a few things, uh, AV industry related. To do that today, joining me, of course, is Michael Drainer. How are you, sir? Doing very well, George. Good to be back. Michael is from Sennheiser Electronics, of course. And we also have Rich Green. He is the chairman of he is the chairman of the Technology Council at Cedia. Hey, Rich. Hey, guys. How you doing? All right. Good to have you on. And of course, we have Mr. Phil Swan. He is the president of TVPredictions.com. Phil, a pleasure to talk to you in person. Good afternoon. Uh, I look forward to getting engaged with you here a little bit on some topics who you and I have tussled with. You must uh, have seen online. that Supreme Court decision. <laughs> You're going to get. <laughs> Oh, we don't get that political on the show. We can move on. <laughs> um, all right, guys. So, Rich, uh, start off. You wrote a really interesting white paper. It was about telepresence, residential, and some opportunities that are coming up. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about it. First, start. Why this paper now? Well, because it's it's happening. Our members are starting to hear from their clients that uh, they want to start. They want to be putting more advanced video conferencing systems in their homes. And this is fairly new territory for most of our members. As you know, Cedia is primarily a residential system integrator association, uh, sort of the sister association to Infocom. And, uh, but our members are crossing over into some light commercial work. It's not unusual to see some of our members getting into um, conference rooms and boardrooms and things like that. And it's so important to have uh, video conferencing communications uh, in those boardrooms. And I'll speak personally. I've got a lot of clients here in the uh, Bay Area. I live and work in uh, Palo Alto, California. A lot of my clients are, are venture capitalists, and they conduct a lot of business at home, usually at all times of the day and night. So it's not unusual for them to ask me to set them up with some kind of a more advanced video conferencing or you know communication system. And we want them to tie in intimately with the enterprise-grade systems that they use in their offices. So here's where we come up into the world of life-size uh, Cisco, Tanberg, and Polycom and working out uh, compatibility and interoperability um, issues between home and office. And the so what we decided to do is uh, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit and explain quickly about the Technology Council at Cedia. 
which I'm the founder and chair of. Uh, we have a great group of people from all over the world. We're looking at grassroots discoveries um, from our members. And then we bubble that stuff up to um, these. Um, we do monthly webinars and we write topical white papers. And then eventually that information, when it becomes really interesting, can get up into recommended practices, bulletins that we co-publish with the CEA and with Infocom, and eventually codes and standards. So this one that we wrote, it's, it's entitled Telepresence Opportunities for Residential Systems Integrators. It's basically just a, it's an introductory white paper. It's a crash course on the basics of video conferencing and how to do it right, not necessarily at full-on telepresence enterprise grade like like a half million dollar room you would put in with a Cisco system, but you know it's not uncommon for some of our clients to ask for stuff like that. Uh, the chairman of CDA right now, Federico Bausone, uh, who works in the Mexico City area, is I think the largest um, supplier, the largest integrator for Cisco Tanberg systems down there, and he's very much into this. So I kind of took a lead from him. We wrote this white paper. And it covers, you know, all the basics that we should be paying attention to about how to design a good room, you know, including lighting and acoustics and room layout and so on, right on through cameras, microphones, codecs, data sharing, um, networking, the works. So I hope that this becomes a suitable introduction to the field so that our members can reach out to companies like Life Size, Polycom, Tanberg, and the others, Blue Jeans video, all those companies, and, and start to learn about this as an opportunity in the home. So here's, here's some questions I have about that. Now, telepresence, of course, has been a big thing in commercial side. Anyone who's done the boardrooms has always had their hands on the Cisco's, the Tanberg's, and the rest of them, the Vadios, right? The trend, it seems, has been towards software over hardware these days. Is your white paper and the classes you give focusing on the differences between those? Is there a preference? Oh, you know, absolutely we do address that. Uh, in my own work, uh, I'm doing, I'll tell you, uh, video conferencing systems in commercial boardrooms, mostly for venture capital firms here around Palo Alto, is floating my boat right now. It's a very good business. And uh, we, uh, one of the firms I work with is uh, did an investment in Blue Jeans Networks and that's when I started to learn about about how powerful software uh, cloud hosted uh, MCUs multi-point control units can be uh, so I've gotten to know quite a bit about Blue Jeans Network and uh, NVIDIA VIDYO uh, and there's some others popping up on the horizon that might be even uh, more economical so it's a, it's a really important development it smooths out integration between all manner of codecs and bringing in people from mobile devices and, and Skype and so on. So uh, yes, it's, it's crucially important. We don't go too deep into the nitty-gritty of who does what because we don't like to feature any particular manufacturer mm. in our white papers. You know, we're trying to be a little bit you know, fair and even across the board, but yeah, it's a really important development. So, Phil, I'm going to throw this to you. Now, I'm not sure how much telepresence in the home or, or those kind of things you are, are, are aware of, but this seems to me to be right up the alley of what a smart TV should be able to do rather than the other junk that they try to sell us on for smart TVs. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that the, the smart TV is selling 
junk. There's a lot of great stuff on smart TV that people are embracing, Netflix, other streaming services and so forth. But I agree with you that the idea of being able to do things like business calls, video business calls and so forth from the home and you know, for someone who's a telecommuter is an awesome idea. You got a lot of folks out there who are looking at computers and squinting at their bosses, you know, in little uh, boxes on the on their windows <laughs> and so forth. And to be able to do that on their television would really enhance the experience, and I think would have a lot of bosses out there be much more encouraged to have telecommuting if you had that set up. And it's an easy thing to do. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of guys that are interested in that. And the, by junk, I mean like sort of Facebook on smart TVs. I'm not sure. Yeah, why. I agree. No, the yeah. streaming <laughs> is great, but they sell this other thing. You know, when you see the ads, yeah. it's like Facebook and Twitter. I'm like, uh, no. I agree with you. That, those are, <laughs> you're absolutely correct. Those are buzzwords in a lot of people's minds. And uh, a lot of people who do commercials and things of that kind go think that would be very cool. Let's put Twitter and Facebook in our commercial. But as I have always said, if, if whatever the feature is, if it doesn't complement that medium, it's not going to succeed. And things like Facebook and Twitter on your television are silly. Oh, come <laughs> now. What else are we going to do during the halftime show? Huh. You know, I have a, um, a little bit to add <laughs> Well, here. you're going to do it on something that, device that makes more sense rather than doing it on your television. Well, that's true. I, I, my question is, where's mobility fitting into all this? Because, you know, back in my integration days, which was just less than six months ago, that was the big push. It, you know, it was, it was uh, integration into the corporate boardroom, into the classroom, and whatever the case may be. But it wasn't so much the home integration that was emerging, but the mobility element of that. And and I'm curious from your perspective, Rich, where is that fitting into the the Resi Cedia platform for VTC applications? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, the Technology Council is working hard to figure out the implications of mobility in the residential space. Uh, I, I like to say in my classes that, you know, the footprint of our work is really not so much the home anymore. It's wherever our clients go because of the thing that's in their pocket. And so we, we've got to embrace Android, iOS devices, phones and tablets, uh, as well as uh, web browser-based communications for our clients, whether they're inside the home or not. So it's, it's a really big deal. We have quite a bit of curriculum now on using mobile devices as sources for audio video in the home and we're also developing curriculum for using mobile devices for um, communications and video so it is a big deal um, virtually every single client I encounter asks me for mobile integration it's uh, top of mind on just about everybody who's working um, in an enterprise of some sort. So we, we have to do it. And, we, and, and my preference is to, is to do it with high performance so that we can deliver a really good experience, uh, something better than, I don't know, maybe better than Skype, but I'll tell you, Skype is pretty good. Um, you know, every client that I've installed a smart TV for over the past year or two, uh, they they virtually have no clue that there's Skype built into these things or even a camera. So when I point that out to them and I go to the smart TV page and show them where Skype is, they go, oh, my God, I can use this. And it's like, well, yeah, you can. So they dive right in, they set up their account, and they start using it right away. So I think Skype on TV is a huge development, and it's really good for families as well as business people. But uh, uh, I think it's mobile that's going to turn the crank here and and put video communications on a lot more people's minds than have been in the past. 
So, so how's that playing with the enterprise integration from the residential perspective and dealing with the security concerns and whatnot? Because that's always been a big issue in deploying VTC to remote sites, uh, especially the residential environment, the sharing of content, encryption, and all that kind of stuff. When you start introducing uh, Skype and Link and some of the other uh, programs that are available out there into a multi-platform VTC environment, you know, security is a major concern, especially for, you know, people dealing with large VC dollars and investment bankers and things like that. How, how are you guys addressing those concerns? Well, there are two ways to do it. Uh, one is to, um, to, to work with the IT managers in the enterprise. And that's job one. Get to know these people, figure out what their security needs are, uh, help establish a VPN if that's required for a secure channel from home. But always defer to the, the IT manager at the business. I would never try to storm in and, and do my own work there. That would be ridiculous. Um, and so you can help these IT managers who aren't so familiar with mobile um, enterprise-grade video conferencing to think about server back-end uh, devices that help them um, uh, establish security for the BYOD uh, crowd. Uh, another way is introduce them to the virtual MCU, you know, to a blue jeans or a video, uh, which also takes security very seriously. But that's pretty brainless integration of Skype and mobile devices. So, um, you know, that's that that would be my approach. Very good. All right, well, let this me, let me just me add something. It's, it's, you know, I wrote a book about 15 years ago. I can't believe it's been so long now, but it's on, on the future of television. I devoted an entire chapter to video phone calls, tracing it back, the history of it, when it was first talked about uh, quite a bit in the 60s at the World's Fair in 1964, they had an exhibit and so forth. And at the time, a lot of people thought that this was gonna be the next big thing in 64, video phone calls, and it didn't take off in large part because uh, research found that people didn't want it because they were fearful of being seen um, obviously, video phone calls has evolved over the last five years, thanks in large part to, to mobile devices. Um, but I think that feeling is still there, that feeling of uh, the concern about privacy, concern about vanity. Uh, and now when you talk about things, uh, you know, government getting involved and in, in looking in records, perhaps that people wish they had not, not taking stand one way or the other. Um, I think there is a big concern out there, and as the whole issue of video phone calls and uh, et cetera continues, it's something that companies that are involved in this are going to have to take very seriously and make people feel comfortable with it for it to really uh, uh, rise any further. Let's just take the Jane Jetson approach. Everybody remember her little mask she used to stick up in front of the video phone? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what we yeah. <laughs> There you go. Well... I have to say that this gives me an opportunity because both gentlemen, both Michael and Rich, mentioned mobility. Uh, and, and, and Phil, this gives me the, uh, the opportunity to, to, to talk to you briefly, I hope, I, well, maybe not so, uh, about the, what I'm calling the, uh, the, the Phil Swan uh, inverse square law. I think you and I have talked about this, where you don't really think people are watching stuff on mobile, <laughs> and every time you say it, the number of people who are doubles. <laughs> Um, no. Do you still think that mobile? Do you still think that mobile is not going to happen? Well, now that's a very broad category, mobile, <laughs> and you really do have to separate that. You have, okay. when you're talking mobile, you're talking um, a little phone 
with, uh, you know, 3.5-inch screen perhaps, and you're talking, let's say, an iPad with an i.8-inch screen. Well, those are two devices that could not be further apart in the visual experience. And an iPad at 9.8 inches or another tablet of similar size, uh, you can watch something, you watch a TV show or even a movie and enjoy it and be very comfortable with it. Looking at a 3.5-inch screen of, let's say, a, an episode of Lost or an episode of Elementary or whatever it might be is a very uncomfortable experience. And the studies actually have shown that when you're talking mobile viewing, uh, smartphones, it is not really going up, but with tablets, it's exploding. And there's a reason why, and that, that is the reason, because one's a comfortable experience and one isn't. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I watch shows all the time on my iPhone while I'm on the plane, and That's I don't, you I don't have find it to too uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, you but have to. It's well, a I've preference, got... though. How many people are on planes on any given day? You go on well, a plane true. trip, you don't go on a plane every day. Mm. That's the problem. You could watch a show on an iPad sitting around your living room and feel right. comfortable doing it. Right. I mean, it actually can compete with your television somewhat. You'll still pick the television for your favorite shows or your favorite time of the day. But if you happen to be sitting around in your, you know, your lobby or your uh, den or whatever, you might watch a television show or if you're on a treadmill or whatever it might be. But you're not going to sit there with your 3.5-inch smartphone, are you? Well, I mean, that's in a valid point. With television so, 60 inches around the corner? No, no, I won't. And and so I think the... the uh, differentiator is accessibility to um, viewing devices. Right, 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 right. So you put and that in consideration. Same thing is if you're on the plane and you have access to the 9.8 inch iPad or the 3.5 inch iPhone, what are you going to pick? Uh, you know what? I typically go for the phone instead of the iPad. And I usually carry both just because I don't want to hold the big thing now, up. Why you know? do you like a smaller screen? <laughs> well, because it, because it's so close. You know, I can sit there. I'm looking at it. I mean, literally eight inches from my face with my headphones. And, it. you know, of course, I've got whacked up vision. That's why I'm an audio guy. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say that if you uh, my tweens, my, my two boys have nanos and they will often prefer to use their little nanos we don't have a ipad in the house yet or a tablet of any size we have phablet phones and we have the uh, nanos and they'll watch the nanos with with no real issue well Not I'll talk I, have a, I have a two-year-old daughter and she'll she, she uses our kindle fire but if she sees one of us using the ipad she takes it out of her hands yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's the smallest screen you think is suitable We've already said the smartphone. I'm finding the whole, uh, the new Sony 6.4 inch uh, phablet very interesting. Oh, cool. It, that might be the minimum. That might be the, the line that you can't go below that uh, to, to get people to take mobile viewing seriously. Because it is true. We're, really, if you look at the research and iPhone viewing is really not going up, the, a huge percentage of uh, activity. Uh, on smartphones is listening to music and chatting and, and emailing and all that sort of thing. Video is very, very small. But when you get to the tablet, it, it's it's totally different. So anyway, but going back to the Sony 6.4-inch phablet, um, it'll be interesting to see if that starts to change. Is 6.4 big enough that people start to feel a little more comfortable with it? And I'm not sure yet. It might be a little small still. Uh, but it, it's going to be interesting to see if it does change the dynamic. 
right. I'm well, curi I'm curious okay. what you guys might think about something like Google Glass coming along, wearable head heads-up displays as a uh, a media experience, a movie watching experience. I was wearing Google Glass at my class at Infocom two weeks ago, and uh, it's pretty darn cool. It's it's a razor sharp image floating over the right eye, uh, so sharp that I could see the pixels. I think it's OLED, but I'm not certain. But um, that's a whole different uh, uh, private movie watching experience. I'm I'm my jury's out on Google Glass. Jury's still out for me on that. I'm really not sure yet it's going to be a mass consumer deal. Although I think I could see you getting behind uh, Google Glass that has the giant aviator glass kind of scenario, and then you've got the almost size screen you want, right? <laughs> as long as you get the stereoscopic imaging, you know, that's the... That's there the, you go. Yeah. Well, let's move on to something that's a little bit more uh, of your preference. The uh, From our friends at Mashable, there's Sharp unveils the world's first THX certified Ultra HD TV. All right. So, Rich... Um, is 4K and Ultra HD really going to happen for the Cedia folks? Are we excited about it, or is this another 3D? Absolutely, positively, yes, we're excited about it. Uh, we, <laughs> we've, we've had a lot of discussion amongst our group about uh, you know, the supposed death of 3D with the ESPN announcement, and I'm saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Uh, yes, we may see a decline um, in the way the broadcasters are embracing 3D uh, because it costs them a lot of money to produce in 3D. But frankly, my clients who have big home theaters and big screens, uh, when we design the video system for the 3D application, which requires some special tricks, um, the clients go, wow, this is the coolest thing ever but they use it maybe twice a year. <laughs> so it's, it's not like a regular use thing, but it's high performance when done well, and it's a blast. So I don't see 3D going away. I see it becoming more niche kind of like two-channel high-performance audio is um, for a lot of hobbyists. I think that's all cool stuff. But um, it's 4K that's really going to be the big news over the next couple of years. And uh, you can see a difference with 4K. I hate these people who say, oh, you can't see the difference between 4K and 1080p. That's baloney. Go stand in front of one once. So I think it's, I think it's awesome. I, I, I love it. I want to see it come into projection, flat panel displays, just as soon as possible. And, yeah, we'll get content sooner or later, but right now, I think the big news from CES 2012 and CES 2013 was the phenomenal scaling silicon that's being built into these 4K panels that can take a good 1080p source and scale it up and make it look really good. So I, I see nothing but upside there. Well, Phil, there's not really much content in 4K now, and a lot of these TVs are talking about it's 4K capable, but we're going to provide this processor to upscale it from 1080p to native, quote-unquote, 4K. Is there legs here? Well, you know, it, it's... i got to go back a little bit to the first time I saw 4K. It was at CES 2012, right? Yeah. Mm. 2012, and I went there specifically with the purpose to see 4K. Doors open day one of CES. I'm rushing to the exhibits, expecting to be overwhelmed, hoping to be overwhelmed, and I was underwhelmed. And I was quite surprised. And 
I did see a difference, but the difference in my mind was minimal. It was not $25,000 better or even $5,000 better. It was simply a slight improvement over 1080p, and I was quite surprised by that. And so I compared notes with others in the industry, people who have more expertise than I in, in the, um, decoding displays. And they were saying the same thing. And I thought, what's going on here? Is it better or is it not? And so as I've been fascinated to see this evolve. And most recently, uh, as you all know, I just did a story uh, on the uh, CTOs at both ESPN and HBO, uh, for lack of a better term, bashing 4K basically saying it's hard to see a difference and to, to truly see a difference you got to sit very close to the screen and you have to have a screen that's uh, very big 60 or better uh, and you start to hear this kind of language and talk and all these other folks who are kind of skeptical it's hard to see mass consumers just going man I got to have this thing what what's going to be the incentive for people to go I just got to have it it's so much better because it's not so much better by most people's estimation. Well, then that's one of my questions, I suppose, is THX being fully qualified on these things now from a single unit. And Rich, we can you know argue that point of whether that's really surround sound and what it's supporting and 7.1 versus 5.1 and, and up. Um, but is the THX more of a gimmick then to say, hey, 4K is really cool. You can have this too. Or do we have more than that here? It's hard for me to see a downside to this. I think 4K is relevant in large displays, and that may be where some people are confused. If you try to see the difference on a 55-inch display when you're sitting at sofa distance, uh, it's hard because of the limits of visual acuity to, to see more detail, uh, especially if you're scaling up from 1080p content. But if you're looking at 4K authentic content with very limited compression, on a large display, 70, 85, or go into projection and start to see it billboard size, it makes a huge difference, and I think it's going to be a slam-dunk decision for anybody who sees it. Hmm. Well, who's well, going to, I mean, how many people are going to be buying those large screens? I mean, people have, you know, depending upon where you live and your living room size and all the rest, uh, it's not easy to get a 70, 80, 90-inch screen in your living room, and there might be somebody who lives there who may not be happy about that choice either. Uh, not to mention, the bigger the screen, the bigger the price. Uh, You've got a lot of obstacles there. Well, I, I and, got Oh, go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. No, no, I thought you were finished. No, I just got one more quick point. When HDTV was sold to the masses, it was, this is such an improvement over what you have now. And it was. And it was easy for people to recognize that. And as a result, over the course of time, people were willing to pay for that difference. Now they're going to be asked in the same way, pay for this difference in this so-called improvement in picture. And they're not going to necessarily see it. And they're going to pair that in their minds to what they were told about HD. And the two aren't going to match up. Yeah, I mean hmm. it's it's all I can I can see both sides of the equation on that one, but I I see it from a little different perspective too though is yes, with the larger displays, the higher resolution makes a lot of sense. But on the other token, as your display goes up, viewing distance tends to increase as well. Therefore, mm -hmm. the perceived improvement in resolution is it really negated or not? I don't know. How big of an improvement is it? That's a good question, and see that that's that's the question I keep asking, and I got to tell you guys, I was floored 
to see what the SBN and HBO guys were saying uh, and how open they were about their skepticism about 4K. You know how this, the industry works. Usually in a situation like this, everybody's all pro. This is going to be great. We're going to sell it. Everybody's going to love it. You got two guys, two pretty powerful you know, channels there, HBO and ESPN, basically saying, I, I don't know if this is going to be successful or not. That's stunning. Well, and what's the TCO for those guys? Yeah, you know, they're running a business, right? And you start thinking about the rate of consumption of something at that resolution, it, all the changes that they have to make in the head end. And I've, I've got quite an extensive background in broadcast, right? So our storage right now for high definition is already quite astronomical to keep the, the days and hours and weeks of content that we have to manage on a regular basis. Now we're going to step it up to 4K resolution. And what have we done to our storage platform? We got server upgrades to make. We got SANS we've got to upgrade. We got infrastructure upgrades that have to go into place. And unless there's mass appeal and mass consumption, that is being demanded of those broadcasters, how in the world can they sell that to the advertisers at a premium cost? I, well, you know, I think the true. jury's out on it. That's quite true, but what makes it so fascinating is the contrast to 3D when everybody couldn't help themselves but jump out there and say what a big hit it was going to be. And, mm. and so now, all of a sudden, we're getting skepticism. And right. I suspect some of that is you had some folks who put their careers on the line selling 3D both in the company and to the public. Exactly. That's valid. Yeah. That, and, that was going to be my next question, actually. Right. And now here they are on 4K. Are they going to put the neck on the line again? Not yeah. I. <laughs> well, you know, there's a big difference between those two phenomena. With 3D, you, you have to put on dorky glasses. You have to recharge the batteries in them in some cases. And there's a little bit of a setup and teardown to the whole 3D experience. Some people will put up with it. Most people won't, especially if you're on the couch watching sports. But on, on 4K, I think one thing we have to pay attention to is what they call the law of accelerating returns in technology. We're going to get silicon. We're going to get storage. We're going to get codecs and compression, H.265, HEVC, that are going to make the 4K transmission economically feasible for the broadcasters but it's not at that point today so they're probably poo-pooing 4k just for the sake of of, of covering their butts because they can't make money on it it's not that right. it's no good well and and that that's the other side of my equation here is is you know like i said i could see both sides of the fence with 3d I honestly believe part of the adoption problems in 3D is the limitation of masses of the population's inability to experience 3D, myself included. I didn't care which setup it was. It could be glass-free, stereoscopic. It could be glass-active, passive. It didn't matter. I could not experience the 3D phenomenon. Now, you go to a technology like 4K, you're not limited by the, the uh, visual impairments of somebody who's got severe stigmatism or, you know, some of the other uh, focus issues that large masses of the population have. Higher resolution is higher resolution, no matter how you look at it. And that's a good point. And I always was laughing that uh, 3D, you're trying to sell a product that about 10 to 15 percent of the public is guaranteed to get sick if you, they use it. <laughs> That's an obstacle right there. Um, here's, but here's something. Going back to the whole 4K thing, it's, it is about whether it's better resolution. And I think we all can agree that 4K is at its best when you have a very large screen and you're sitting relatively close to the screen. If the 4K industry is smart, they will focus 100% on that market. Rather than trying to bring out these 55-inch so-called cheap 4K, 
even 65 inch 4K perhaps, what they're going to do is they're going to create this mixed message out there. They should have only 4K TVs that are awesome, that people will perceive as awesome. By having these 55-inch 4Ks out there and 60-inch 4Ks or whatever, they are going to get people buying them, bringing them home and saying, I don't see the difference. 4K is another 3D and negative word of mouth is going to get spread. So I think the TV industry would be real smart and try not to make this a mass product and make it niche and go for that, that, that guy or that gal who wants the 80-inch television is going to find a place in his home or her home for it. Well, I got one step further. You know, at Infocom, uh, Sony was it Sony that had the uh, 8K running, George? There at the front? Uh, I believe Sharp's so, but I wasn't allowed to take pictures. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, they wouldn't let anybody near it. But I'm saying, hey, let's skip 4K. <laughs> let's just go straight to 8. Yeah. Baby steps, buddy. Baby steps. Yeah, it's the industry. got to make money. <laughs> and on that point of making money, though, here's one of the things I think 4K and 8K might have an advantage in. And this is sort of off, off in the, into the um, – I'm sorry. My brain just froze up on me there. And aside to it is – from Engadget, there's an article here about Sony puts micro ads on Wimbledon players, ushering in an era of 4K marketing. Now, I work with a lot of millennials in the business that I work in, and they hate advertising. They hate it on podcasts. They hate it on anything that they watch. Regardless of the argument of what it pays for, they can't stand it. But having it in the show doesn't necessarily bother them. So are we looking at an impetus here where advertisers and broadcasters say, we must have 4K, because showing that very micro ad that shows up on somebody's fingernails or shows up in some portion of the show is actually getting the advertising done and it can still pay for the shows and actually have a channel. Is, is there an advantage here to that? That's valid. Yuck. Who's yuck? That was uh, Phil? <laughs> I, uh, that, that's a reach. That's a reach. Uh, it, it could be a reach, but I can see the validity behind it. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons that Aviation stays ad free, right? Because our, our listeners have said we don't want ads. And so we're supporting it holistically and looking for other ways to finance it. And you're seeing the same thing within the broadcast industry. They're finding other ways to monetize oh, their yeah. programming. And if something, a technology like this can bring the resolution that allows them to do brand awareness throughout the entire program without it being overt. Why wouldn't they go after that? Well, I know product product placement's older than I am. That's pretty darn old, but uh, on television, and it's so there's nothing new about that. But the mm. fact that you could make it lit uh, the image a little smaller, and but it'll still be discerned right. by the viewer. Um, I don't think you have to do 4K to do that. I think there are all kinds of creative ways to have product placement without having to build a whole infrastructure for 4K. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It reaches. It was a tangential thought, and that was the word I was trying to find <laughs> earlier. But, it, you know, stranger things have happened, right? I mean, Oh, that's for sure. Um, and by the way, just last point, if I can. Yeah. Sony must have some kind of advertising budget. They've had money left over or something because they are really gone creative on 4K. Mm. I mean, they really must have gotten into a big conference room at some point and said, we got advertising money left over and a lot of ideas, and we're going to really put it in 4K because – if you've noticed, they are really going all out. Is it's it a, surplus or less ditch? I, you know, that's a very good question, and it might be a combination. Uh, they got the money and figured they better spend it now while they can. Right, <laughs> before the banks well, take it. Uh, speaking of the, uh, the, the new broadcast, uh, again, Phil, you had a, a lovely article called Why Netflix is the King of Streaming. 
Now, streaming is sort of where everybody's going. This gives us an opportunity to talk about cable cutters and some other stuff. I know another favorite subject of yours. Um, but the streaming thing, as you said before, it's the content, right? They've got everything that somebody wants. For me, it's my kids. It's on their Wii. It came in a device. I said, sure, I'll sign up. And my kids watch 80% of what they watch on TV is via Netflix. And then they have the special shows that I can watch as a marathoner because I don't always have time to watch during the day. I can watch the entire season in a sitting and then say, okay, I've got my fill. Uh, is this going to take over from, uh, from broadcast? And, and what about the cable cutter is issue? It no. Okay, why not? Okay. It, yeah, streaming is not going to take over broadcast. Um, Disappointing us. You know that. Yes. A thousand hearts just fell. Because <laughs> I, I am this close to cutting the cord on everything but streaming. Everybody says that, but it doesn't it just doesn't happen i mean people always say oh i'm so fed up with my cable company i'm so fed up with this or that and they just keep paying the bills they cut them down a little bit they might drop a premium channel or something like that or lower their programming package but you know it's amazing pay tv still pulling 87 percent of the viewing audience that's higher than it was 15 years ago is it because there's no local broadcasting and then they want the the pay stuff or it's a combination they they want the convenience of it they do like having their local channels without having to deal with antennas you know this mm -hmm. we've known that for five decades right uh, it's the regional sports uh right. structure set up with that is basically almost like a monopoly you want to watch your favorite baseball hockey basketball team you better get cable or satellite um there's That's a lot of those me. things that there are a lot of those uh, what uh, you know marketing barriers set up that uh, makes it difficult for the concept of cord cutting to really take hold. Well, and, and that's the one thing that keeps most of us captive, and that's the one thing that's keeping me and my family captive is just that. It's the morning sports. local news, it's sports, it's weather, it's all those things, because I, I kind of live down in the valley. I can't pick up the over-the-air very effectively without putting up a big tower, and there's a lot of people in those situations you know, we're, we're, we're captive by that marketing engine and just kind of screwed, really. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. That's exactly, you're absolutely correct. It's, uh, it's little things, perhaps, but it's, it's crucial things to your life and uh, things you've relied on, depend on, and uh, pay TV provides it, and so you're stuck. A la carte service, baby. What are you going to do? A la carte but where service. Netflix and Amazon, Hulu... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, where I... The Go ahead. I was just going to say where the streamers come in and where they where they're most successful and most beneficial is as a complement. They enhance the viewing of pay TV. Uh, you are able to watch, you know, 16 straight episodes of Breaking Bad or as I did over the course of three weeks, 40 plus episodes of Breaking Bad. Nice. I was ready to go out and sell meth at the end of that. I'm telling you. Um <laughs> So, yeah, it, it's it's that sort of thing that pay TV really can't do or do well. And that's where the streamers are, do so well. And so they enhance your pay TV viewing. And as a result, I've been predicting for several months now, you're going to see an in increase in the amount of television viewing overall. People are going to watch television more hours per week than they ever have. And I just saw a study a couple weeks ago saying that's starting to happen. And you're going to see more of that. And what's what's the mo the driving factor behind that? Because you have more options, more choice. 
television and the rise of television technology, the things that are successful are always about giving more choice. That's why the satellite TV guys exploded in the 90s, because they had 200 channels suddenly when cable had 50. There was more mm -hmm. choice. Uh, Netflix and Amazon, Hulu, etc., give you more choices. And as a result, people like that. That doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You continue to keep your paid TV because you want that too. But you do want to be able to say, okay, well, let's go watch to your old Lucy, Yo Gabba Gabba on Netflix now Yo instead Gabba of Gabba. Washington National. So, <laughs> and she will. So, Well, I want to remind everybody they're listening to AV Week on AV Nation. Uh, joining me today is Michael Drainer, Rich Green, and Phil Swan. Guys, so, Phil, one more for you. It, it, with the streaming, though, if Netflix is successful, like Hulu and others who are creating their own series, their own content, much like HBO and Showtime were doing to garner a larger audience, does this give them a, bigger, a better leg, do you think? Or are they just doing something that's going to lose out in the end? And will that actually change the, the, the status quo in this argument if they have more original dynamic content? If they do it well... They will become a major player. And that first part of my sentence is crucial because as they are now learning, it's not easy to do original content. HBO has been doing this for years and years and years and years, and they still struggle, Showtime and et cetera. Netflix had some success with House of Cards. We don't really know how successful, but I think we can say it was a hit to some degree. But then you look at their other shows, Lilyhammer and Hemlock Grove and even Arrested Development. They're not really being perceived as hits, anything, maybe even bombs in a couple of those. And so original content is a very hard thing to do. There's a reason why certain companies do it well and others don't. And Netflix doesn't have a lot of experience doing original content. And so if they evolve and get the, you know, they're churning out hits like every three months. Well, more power to them, and they're going to be a huge player. But if they don't, they're going to spend a lot of money, and that's going to hurt them as they start to continue to try to compete with Amazon, Hulu, and the others. Well, Rich, I'm going to put this to you. In, in your perspective from Cedia, are, are dealers hearing more desire for these streaming services in place of something else? Or is it, again, as Phil says, an added value well yes definitely uh, all of our clients are addicted to Netflix I think the big question for Cedia integrators is which of the many sources are you going to steer them to I mean you can get Netflix on your toilet right now it's just an amazing <laughs> plethora of source uh, uh, sources so by the way I hear uh, that's a great place to watch it absolutely yeah <laughs> If you're a parent, it's the only place you got, let me tell you. You know, so you see it built into the TV set. You see it built into the Blu-ray player. Uh, very often we're putting in Apple TVs, which have a very nice experience of Netflix built into them. Um, so it's more a matter of pointing them to the correct source, make sure that they're authenticated with their account. But um, uh, I can't tell you how many times my clients will call me and say, Oh my God, the Netflix is down, right? And it's like, whoa, okay, that's mission critical now. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it could be a network problem, what have you. But uh, it's extremely important uh, to our clients. And I think for the most part, we're steering them to the Apple TV as the place to source it. That, that's where I get mine, and I love it. Because I, I tried it on the Xbox, I tried it on the DVD player, but the Apple TV is just seamless. 
So moving on to, from the micro, i.e. the streaming and the little boxes, to the macro, our friends at DSI Entertainment, an integrator, uh, wrote a really cool article that I've been seeing more and more of, and I think this is something that they need to teach clients, and there's confusion out there. Home theater or media room, what's the difference? Now, Rich, it was for years that we called everything a home theater, whether it was the giant multi-million dollar custom fabrics or the tiny little viewing room. But there is a difference these days now, and it's based on who we can sell to, no? Oh, it has to do with uh, many, many factors. I've got clients now who think that a dedicated, gloppy, Egyptian-style red velvet home theater is antisocial. The last thing they would want to do is go down into a hole in the basement and abandon their party, you know, or their family. So it's more of a social phenomenon that families want to stay together, the kids want to hang out on the couch, do their homework, while the uh, the movies in play so a media room is really a multi-purpose room the other factor here is flat panel displays um, the uh, the presence of very high quality very large flat panel displays means we don't need to have a controlled ambient light environment in order to watch really high quality video and it's also uh, fairly easy to get discrete audio into these spaces so for the most part we're seeing a transition to media rooms but I got to tell you, just in the past year, I've seen more requests for dedicated home theater spaces. They seem to be coming back, and I don't know if that's because there's a bounce back in the real estate market, but um, I'm seeing a more of a request for dedicated home theater spaces. And then my question for my clients is, okay, this let's make this the most useful room we can imagine. Would you would you consider video conferencing or telepresence? in your home theater. Would you ever be making PowerPoint or keynote presentations to your executive staff? Would your kids want to do a performance at the stage in front of the screen? Then it becomes a fairly interesting space. But as a as a whole to go into to watch a movie at the end of the night, it's less interesting than a big screen media room. I want a stage in front of my screen. It's cool. It's fun. The kids go out there and dance. Yep. Uh, some, sometimes our clients will have a drum set they'll bring out and they'll bring out you know their buddies and they'll do a little jam nice. session it's a great place that's to do that that's what I'm talking that. about that's what we need to do I'm very happy to hear home theaters are back on the rise again that's a great thing there's something well, romantic about a home theater it's just <laughs> good, isn't good for it? the projector community it's good for the screen community but I'll tell you a properly designed and tuned home theater is still an overwhelmingly great experience. Oh, absolutely. Only problem is in, in the Midwest, the home theater becomes the playroom, yep. the toy room, the game room. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. that's a very good point. Putting games into the theater draws more use of the theater. So putting an Xbox or a PlayStation in there, certainly with the Kinect, if you clear space at the front so you can move around, um, very often, like, we'll put a, a sofa at the front that could be moved back. So you've got a little of a, a floor space there to work with. It's a hoot and a holler to do giant screen games. Mm. Cogs are turning. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so moving on to another part of this that yeah, we've been having a lot of difficulty with. I know at Infocom, people have been talking about this. We're talking about AVB and HD base T in an alliance. Dun, and this dun, is something dun. I know a lot of us have said, well, wait, wait, who? I thought they were like arch enemies. Uh, Michael? Yes. They're not the same, but they're not different. What's going on here? 
you know, I think that everybody's starting to see the light that AVB rules and HD under HD based T folks understand that if they want to get anywhere with their technology, they need to jump on board. I mean, look, the fact is that HD based T is a point to point protocol. It's very mm. limited because of that. And the industry as a whole is asking for routable, switchable, distributable protocol using off the shelf infrastructure. And that's something that AVB is able to deliver that HD base T can't. So I think it just makes sense in the natural attrition of technology for them to go that way. And and I equate it back to the whole um, Dante versus AVB wars that everybody talks about that really wasn't a war because if you really understand the dynamics, Dante's a company whose product is based on HD or on um, AVB protocol. So it just makes sense for them to start working together to develop the standards and continue to progress them. And I think the same holds true here. Even though HD base T isn't based on AVB, there's a lot of similarities there. And, you know, joining forces is going to allow them to take this to the next level and bring us a solution and a standard that's going to be able to grow with the industry as we continue to progress down distributed infrastructure. Tim, I'll put this to you. How long do you think it takes us to get to that point where there are, quote unquote, one standard and we have the best of both? Who was that going to? I said Rich. Sorry. Oh, sorry. You said oh. Rich, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm all for standards. And we've been watching AVB. Of course, we're well, you know, we're deep into the HD based T world. Um, I like the fact that uh, AVB is uh, can be network switched but when it really comes right down to it is there that much of a difference you're using the same kind of wire same kind of connector and it's going to something that switches on AVB if I'm not mistaken there's um, uh, at the Mac layer they're doing port assignments so they're yes. actually patching port to port it, it is almost like a point to point scheme although it goes through a network device so uh, frankly I don't see a whole lot of difference between AVB and HD base T it's really about the manufacturers adopting the port on the back of their device. And you've got HD base T built into Epson projectors now and so on. That's a very cool development. When will we see AVB on resident residential grade video products? I don't know. I'm not sure if there are any right now. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of any, but it was it was always hoped for. I mean, I'm part of like uh, AES, the Audio Engineering Society, so I've been hearing about it off and on for aeons. But uh, yeah, I guess that's the, 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 the final straw. If they can make a commercial, residentially, off-the-shelf viable product, whether it's with HD based T or in some conjunction, then that's when the, the, the break will happen. Yeah, Hopefully you know it's sooner I than later. And you could do that now. I mean, goodness, look at the Crestron DM platform. My understanding is, I'm no expert in this regard, but my understanding from my contacts within Crestron is that DM is, is loosely based on HD based T, if not substantially based on it. And, you know, they're doing all that switching within DM. So you, you are able to do that now in the residential world. You've got a lot of people doing it in high-end resi market currently. Where AVB is going to take that to the next level is eliminating the need for a centralized matrix, right? Because now it's just on the LAN, and the LAN is doing the switching. It's no longer um, having to go to a dedicated matrix to, to make that happen. And with the advent of uh, super high bandwidth Wi-Fi now, and lower latency Wi-Fi, we're starting to see improvements in that regard. We're really going to the world of wireless video, which you know we've dreamed about for a long time, and I myself have tested many products over the years with great demise uh, in the wireless HD space. Oh, you mean like the, 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 the technology I call Brundlefly? Shit. Huh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, episode number three, I think? <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean that that's that's where I see this going. And, and and Phil, I'm sure you can comment on that from the television manufacturing side. That you know we're starting to see more and more wireless, more and more networking, more and more standardized infrastructure coming into our displays, and it's just a matter of time. Yep, it is, and it's crucial because the one thing that a lot of TV makers, a lot of people in the industry tend to forget, the average consumer is not tech savvy. We're just, it's not a tech savvy nation, no matter what people think. And when you have something that's wireless and uh, it makes it easier to you know, have a connection to pick up a streaming service or whatever, you have a much better chance of getting a person to embrace it. You know, I'm very excited about what's happening with uh, Wi-Fi 802.11ac. It's built for high bit rate um, quality uh, media streaming. And with the Apple announcement two weeks ago, we've got 802.11ac, Apple Airport Extreme Base Station. Shipping right now, I've already installed a couple of them. It's built into the, uh, um, the MacBook Air. And I think, uh, I know that Qualcomm... Uh, Snapdragon 800 will have uh, mobile devices with 802.11ac built in, so we're going to have potentially 4K quality streaming from a mobile device across the room to a TV set. So I think this is a very interesting and exciting development. No wires required whatsoever. And, and remind us, uh, 80, the AC, is that still the 2.4 gigahertz? I can't remember off the top of my head, or is it... It's, well, it's the, most of the routers and access points that support 802.11ac are going to be multi-band, but it is okay. up in the 5 gigahertz range. It's, it's an improvement over the A standard, and it has quality of service built into it, low latency, all the things that you need. And then moving beyond that, we're getting into the 60 gigahertz guys, which are able to transmit, oh my God, 3, 4, 5, 6 gigabits per second data streams, and that yeah, it easily supports 4K. But 802.11ac is five gigahertz. It's in a it's in yeah. a very it's a more or less a it's a clear area with not a whole lot of interference. Yet, <laughs> sorry. Yet, <I> <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we all said that about 2.4 gigahertz about five or six years ago, and uh, that's right. If you lived in an urban area, when they said it five or six years ago, you were already going no, not so much. But uh, that that being said, well, let's move on into a similar vein, uh, and probably our final story for this for this episode is. Uh, it's a press release, and I'm sorry for this. I usually try not to do that, but it's from the wireless speaker and audio guys. They are uh, making a testing facility to verify and certify wireless surround sound and speaker systems. Is this a positive thing, Rich? Is this going to actually encourage a growth of it, or are we just looking at something that's uh, you know, a THX stamp on a, a flat panel with no surround sound? Oh, no, it, it, it's another positive thing. I used to be skeptical about the WISA group, WISA, but, but their standards are very high. They're actually going for extremely low latency uh, quality wireless so that a left and right two-channel system will throw a very convincing stereo image. Uh, the quality of the broadcast and the timing is crucial to them. So I'm, I'm thumbs up on the performance of it. Uh, but once again, we need to see endpoints. We need to see speakers, AV receivers, preamps, and source components that support the WISA standard. I don't know how much traction they will get. They seem to be holding themselves together pretty well. But, um, you know, I'm a big fan of any kind of a no new wires initiative. It gets us into the retrofit market, which is vastly bigger than the new construction market. I don't want to have to run wires through people's homes. 
I'd rather make magic with no wires whatsoever. So the WISA standard is, as far as I'm concerned, a step in the right direction. Hmm. But doesn't that somewhat eliminate the need for you, Rich, if you don't have to run the kitchen? No. No, no, not at all. It gets me into more homes. It gets me into more rooms inside of more homes. We are still system integrators, and everyone on this call has to believe that consumer electronics is can be a very bad experience. There is no good out-of-the-box experience, no matter what. Just take a Samsung Smart That's valid. TV That's valid. and try and make it work. I mean, you're going to have network hiccups. You're going to have wireless hiccups. And it does take a professional integrator to get it done right. And I think one way or another, people are going to figure that out. So we've got a whole lot of curriculum built on our CDA University. We've got a lot of online content to help our members understand how incredibly important these wireless technologies, whether it's Zigbee, Z-Wave, Bluetooth, NFC, 802.11ac, you know, pick it. We have to do it right. We have to do it with professional quality. Good answer. All right. Well, guys, I think that does it for this episode of AV Week. Joining me today has been Michael Drainer from Sennheiser Electronics. Present. Thank you, George. Present. <laughs> Rich Green, he is the chairman of Technology Council at Cedia. Or rather, that's the chairman of the Technology Council of Cedia. And, of course, Phil Swan, president of TVPredictions.com. Viva la Presidente. I am your host, George Tucker. Gentlemen, Rich, where can people find you online, social media, if they have questions? Uh, best to shoot me an email, rich at richgreeninc.com, R-I-C-H-G-R-E-E-N-I-N-K.com. And Michael, of course. At Michael Drainer on Twitter is the best place to reach me. And Phil, beyond your lovely tvpredictions.com, any other uh, forums and uh, social outlets? Swanee on TV at Twitter. Swanee. Yes, I enjoy it. Is, uh, is that with I an IE or a Y? I. Just an I. Just an I. I am hearing the little magical flute for the snakes with that every time he says it. <laughs> um, all right, guys, that'll do it for this episode of AB Week. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon.